we have any questions from last week or from anything that you read? Um, you were strangely silent, which class usually is the first week. No words, everything was crystal clear. Maybe you're not reading, I'm not going to ask. Okay. <laughs> In theory, I'm going to cover 100 pages of this book. I have the foggiest idea if I will or not. I just want to reflect, as I did a little bit last time, just about this book itself. I think this is one of the most unusual books Swami's ever written. I mean, he's written 80 books. At one time or another, I've read all of them, and most of them I've read more, more than once. Many I've read many more than once. But this has a, a very unusual quality to it. It's, it's, it's very nonlinear. Um, he himself said when he wrote it, it was, a, it was a struggle to write. He struggled very, very... It, it, didn't, it didn't, especially because he had just done the Bhagavad Gita, which he wrote in a matter of weeks, you know, that 650-page book. It took him two months to write the entire book. And he just, he waited his whole life to write the commentary on the Gita, thinking it was such a massive project. And then when he finally sat down to do it, it just wrote itself. So then he started on this one about a year later, thinking that that was the mode of writing. And he said he just, um, when he says struggled, it doesn't mean that he sat there in front of his typewriter and, you know, agonized over words. When I was working with, uh, trying to write the book about him, which I eventually did, we had a discussion of the phrase writer's block. He called it writer's cramp, I think. And then he realized that probably wasn't what it was. But then he confessed he'd never had it ever, which was something to really say, because all that he's written, because he's just a channel. But this book, he said, the structure of it just... It, he, he writes at this point in his life where he literally, from paragraph to paragraph, doesn't know what's coming next. He writes the same way he speaks. I mean, every, we think that we're going to outline and all this, but he just, he writes this sentence and then the next one will follow and the next one will follow. I can talk like that, but I've never been able to write quite like that. But this book especially, he just didn't know where it was going. It just sort of kept taking itself somewhere. And, and it was hard, it was hard to, let me think exactly what he meant, just sort of, to find the way to put the arguments together. It took an enormous amount of concentration. The Gita flowed like music. He said he could just sort of see it. But you, when you read it, you sort of feel that. And it's, it's like um, there is such a massive misunderstanding of Christianity. And there's a, in, the, in the chapters that I was reading on this, there's, I'll pull out different phrases that struck me. He talked about it being the fate of Christianity to be very misunderstood and to be misrepresented. And many of you, but not all of you, are familiar with Yogananda's concept of ascending and descending ages. And Jesus was born at the time when life on this planet was getting darker and darker, when the materialistic age was getting more and more solid. We've now come up the other side, and now we're moving into the age of energy. But Jesus was a fully realized master who planted a complete divine teaching um, in the hearts of uh, souls that were capable of receiving it because merely because the planet is in a higher low state doesn't necessarily mean that everybody on it matches the planet. Although when the planet gets very, very refined, really gross souls no longer incarnate. They, they can't. We're not at that point yet. And during the time of Christ, it was a time of in, in, intense commitment to the material world as being the real world. And that, of course, means just subtle concepts, even like energy, are very, very hard for people to understand. Nowadays, you know, starting with Einstein and then never looking back, we've just had this ever-expanding understanding of the world as energy. But think about it. Like even still, people measure force in terms of horsepower, don't they? I mean, you hear that word, but that was actually the power of a horse. Well, how strong is that engine? Well, they had to weigh it against something that you could measure. Well, that engine can move as much as five horses, or a hundred horses, almost an unimaginable amount. You could hitch a hundred horses, and that's how much that engine can do. So we still use those words, because a, a, an engine, you, when you, if you think of just first looking at it without having any concept, like where does the, where does the energy come from? Who's pushing? Who's pulling? That would, that would just be the way the world was. You have a human being, or you have a domesticated animal, and it pushes or pulls. And all of a sudden, there's no life force pushing or pulling. You just have this 
noisy, sometimes smelly thing burning, making steam or burning wood or burning gasoline. And then all of a sudden all this energy is generated. And that was just now just hopelessly crude. Now we have all these, whatever they are, who knows what they are, these batteries and all these um, ways in which energy is so small and so subtle you can't even see it. And we just take that for granted. And, and human vocabulary, especially in California, but in many parts of the world too. You know, we just talk in terms of energy a lot of the time. I didn't like the energy of the place. They put out good energy. <clears throat> you know, let's just apply some energy to this situation. We just, we, we always think like that. But hundreds of years ago, especially 2,000 years ago when Jesus was living, the vibrations on the planet were intensely materialistic. Um, this is an a- this whole business of what this planet Earth is doing is an astronomical phenomenon, depending on where it is in this complex orbit. It's a whole nother subject which I won't go into. We'll just assume it. But uh, so his his whole effort he was he was facing. And Swamiji also writes about this that um, the, I'm, I was born Jewish, so I can speak frankly about Jews. I always have to say that sometimes because sometimes people think I'm. I shouldn't be saying what I'm saying. But the Jews themselves describe, uh, it, you know, Moses made this rule because we're a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. That's how they wrote about themselves. And, you know, that's the greatness of the Jewish people insofar as cultural stereotypes are real at all, which is hard-hearted is not a good one, but stiff-necked, stubborn, determined. The Jews would have been annihilated a long time ago if they didn't have that kind of strength. And you just tend to find that Jewish people can excel because they have this uh, force of commitment to their own way of doing things. Ananda itself is actually 10% Jewish, which is really interesting considering the uh, national average is much less than that. Uh, the national percentage of Jews is not by no means 10%. In fact, all of the ashrams, we all noticed this back in the 70s and 80s, all of the ashrams, we're just populated by Jewish, smart Jewish kids. And in fact, um, my Jewish mother-in-law said that every Jewish family had lost one to an ashram. (laughs) And she went so far as to add, and usually the brightest, most promising one, which was an interesting comment. Now, you know, cultural stereotypes are not the point of this discussion, except one of the realities that we have to understand is that, as Swami explains so vividly, all the masters have the same state of realization. And this whole, this whole first part of the book is trying to explain to us that there is something, which I talked about last week a lot, sanatana dharma, which is just the way things are, which is science. Just in exactly the same way that science, the, the scientists have objectified the way we are made, so the true, the true saints, who are the real spiritual scientists, so to speak, have objectified the way that we're made spiritually, and also the way all of creation is made. In the West, these facts are not known as much for many different reasons, but they will be in the future. But, um, but in the truth of Sanatana Dharma, when, when these great souls reincarnate as free souls, which is to say that they have already overcome, that's how Jesus described himself, you know, for I who what once... If you, if you receive what I am teaching you, you can overcome as I have overcome, and you will go no more out. That's how he put it. Nothing in the Bible is said in plain English. But if you know what he's talking about, it's self-evident what he's talking about. Because, as, as we may touch more tonight, but, but the end point of all of this is that there's no avatar that has a greater state of realization than any other, because it's an absolute state of consciousness. If you realize God, you just realize God. If God is infinite, if God is eternal, you can't be sort of like sort of eternal or partially infinite. It just doesn't work. You either are or you aren't. Now, it's true there are stages of realization up toward that, but once they incarnate, and yet over the just the little bit of span of recorded history that we know, they're also different one than another. And, and their teachings seem to vary a great deal also. And so you, it's very, very confusing. And the Christians have just made, made a hash of the truth because of that fact. But what it is, is once a, a master is drawn 
to this world, not in a random sort of way, but because of a specific need in a specific time in a specific place. Um, Yogananda's whole incarnation, and Swami talks about it in, in this section of this book, and he talks about it in a lot of other places, too. We talk about it every week in the Festival of Light, that, that Yogananda's incarnation was a direct result of Jesus' request. Because the masters, even though they leave this planet, they don't abdicate their responsibility for this planet. Swamiji has raised the very interesting theory that this group of, of masters whose pictures in various, you know, in various ones of their incarnations are on the wall behind us, that this group of masters may, in fact, have really special responsibility for this planet. Because Babaji was Krishna in a previous lifetime, Yogananda was Arjuna, there's this very close connection between Christ and this line of masters. Swami writes in here that the three wise men who went to visit Christ were three of the Indian gurus who are on the wall here, Babaji, Lahiri, Sri Teshwar, and it begins to look very suspicious that there's this sort of ongoing responsibility that they carry out. So Jesus incarnated, I mean, there's a lot of threads to tie together here. So when a master chooses to incarnate, he's responding to something. He doesn't just sort of bully his way in. I mean, and these are all very important principles. It sounds like, well, what does, you know, what does the motivation of a master mean to me? But what we're really talking about is God does not bully his way in. We can't just sort of presumptuously say, there's a story in um, the book I wrote about Swamiji, where this man, whose name has totally escaped me, um, anyway, he, he was a very, uh, he, he, he wanted to be a disciple. He had some level of sincerity, but not a great deal. But he mostly was just into him, his own ego. And so he was going to do something that was very foolish, and he wasn't really listening to Swami, and he sort of said, well, if Master, wants me, if Master doesn't want me to do it, he'll stop me, is how he phrased it, sort of a very reverse. And, that, and Swami was gracious to him because basically the man wasn't asking for any advice, so there was no point in trying to insert any. But after the man left the room, Swamiji turned to me and said, why would God stop him? <laughs> you know, if he just wants to go and live his own life according to his own lights... It's not God's. God's not going to do battle with him. There has to be receptivity. There has to be a sincere opening on our part to know something that we don't already know and the humility to receive it, at least among a sufficient number. And these, there's a kind of, again, a repeating pattern in the incarnations that come. And Moses, Yogananda stated, was a true master. Um, the uh, the The esoteric reference in the uh, Old Testament that Jesus, that Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness. Wilderness always means the silence of meditation. The serpent represents the kundalini. So in the inner silence of the wilderness, Moses raised the kundalini energy. I mean, the Old Testament is so old and it's so much about, you know, wrathful gods and feisty people bashing each other to bits that it's, it's not there's wonderful passages in there, but there's a great deal of it that you just, well, you want to turn the pages, but not because you want to keep reading them. You just want to get past who's doing the wrath on the other one. But anyway, but Moses came at a particular time in the history of the Jewish people when they were um, being extricated from a life of slavery, and he had to teach them how to be a free people. So he, he, he laid down all the laws and the rules of how they had to behave. They had to establish a society. They just didn't know how. I never really thought about that until I was reading about a much more modern saint, not an avatar, but a saint, which is George Washington Carver, who was the black man at the, just at the end of the Civil War. He's a very inspiring character, really was an extraordinary spiritual man. He's known for inventing peanut butter mostly, but you know, and all the other things he did that way. But in truth, he was a great saint. He's amazing. And he was a great saint sent, sent to the, the Negro people at that time to teach them how not to be slaves. Because they'd only been slaves. They didn't have any idea how to live. And his whole dedication was to help them understand how to take care of themselves and then find ways for them to take care of themselves. And just like he was the saint sent right at that time to do that. He was born a slave, but um, the emancipation came when he was still a baby. But seeing that one, then I go back and I read about Moses bringing the, the uh, Jews out of Egypt. And the Jewish 
tradition was a true tradition. Now, this is what we have to understand. As Swamiji writes in this book, in various chapters here, he, he says, not all religions are equal, because some are man-made. He said, it's only natural that man would try to figure it out. I mean, you're here, what causes suffering? What's the nature of life? And some truths are revelation from above. You have a fully realized master who perceives infinity, and then in a God-inspired way, tries to find some way to communicate to that to those who are receptive. And then there are other religions where some energetic, bright person, sometimes a, an honest, sincere one, at whatever stage of realization he or she has, just figures it out and you get these movements started, the theosophy movement or the unity church or things like that. And it's not that those churches are by any means false. I don't mean that. It's just that they're... they're they're more man-made and they're not necessarily going to contain the entirety of um, Sanat and Dharma. I, those are not really good examples for me to bring up because I don't even really know what's in them. You know, and some religions are just patently false. People just make them up. They just do, sincerely as I say or otherwise. But uh, among the ones that are real revelations like um, Christianity is, the it, it it comes for a particular time and place. And once, as, as we've said it before, once the master incarnates, his, his or her freedom, what's always his is, we, there's no avatars that are female. I asked Swami that question once. I said, Swamiji, why are, why are all the avatars male? I said, I get a lot of flack for this, you know, when I'm especially in an area where I live, which is here. He said, well, an avatar can choose the, um, the gender of the body. It's not compelled by karma. He said, he gave me several reasons, which were interesting reasons. First, he said, as a rule, men have more freedom. And so it's simply more convenient to be a man. You have to not only, you have to fight against all the societal things, but of, which, of course, an avatar could easily do. But the other side, he said, is basically being an avatar is masculine work. Because it's, it's that kind of force where, you, where you're coming an avatar comes to, to move the whole world in a certain direction, and that's a masculine thing to do. I'm not, not male-female, masculine. You know, that's a masculine attitude. The feminine attitude is uh, on a more receptive level. So if you're coming to change the world, you're just going to be a man because that's what you would be if that's what you were coming to do. The, uh, Ananda Moima is an example. She's not an avatar, but she was a very great saint. She never did anything at all. I mean, literally. She never founded an organization. She never wrote a book. She was completely illiterate, in fact. She often, she rarely even, I mean, she would speak and give satsangs, but mostly she just sat there and radiated extraordinary divine power and, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of people in India over the course of her very long life. She was recognized as a great um, yogi in a very young age, lived into her 80s and but she, you know, an organization started up around her. They started publishing a magazine. They started building ashrams. She never participated or identified in any of it. She was entirely feminine in the way she related. She just radiated. She just was. At the same time, paradoxically, she had a very gyanic nature. Jnana is the, um, the wisdom-based attitude. She was a devotional because everyone at that level has a lot of love. But her, all of her... Her, her speeches, which are all written down by others, is very impersonal, just profoundly impersonal. So you see how this wonderful thing plays together, whereas Yogananda and Christ, too, they were very, especially Yogananda, whom we know more about, but very motherly, very loving. You know, his face was such that people often couldn't tell whether he was a man or a woman. He wore his hair long. I'm sure some of you have had fun of having master's picture up in a hotel room or something, and the maid will say, wasn't that sweet? You brought your mother's picture. Or Swami would be asked sometimes if that was his girlfriend. You know? Because it's just a, a, it's not just the features, it's the vibration that comes through it. Well, having said all of this, he, the avatar, um, comes in response to something. And at the time that Jesus incarnated, the, the only group that was still holding to Sanatana Dharma in that whole part of the world, because it was a descending age, and, and whereas there had been higher civilizations, notably the Egyptian civilization, the Roman Empire even, there had been all these higher civilizations in the past, consciousness was darkening on the whole planet. 
what happens is the earth literally moves farther and farther away from the um, soar, the center of the a galaxy in which we revolve, and then the um, the energy on the planet diminishes, and then people's consciousness gets duller. It's a complex thing, and so that was happening. So people were forgetting, <laughs> and people were exiting. You know, there weren't as many. But Jesus came to plant this power and this truth, so it would it would last through um, the Kali Yuga. It's called the materialistic age, and not only did the teachings of Jesus endure, but the monasteries that were built around his teachings were where essentially civilization and knowledge was preserved. You see how interesting it all is? So even though they were unable to hold the clarity of, of the elevated, the true, um, the truth, the full truth of what Jesus taught, still they kept a remnant of it going through that whole period of time. And I was saying also, once the avatar incarnates, he doesn't lose his personal freedom of consciousness. That we have to understand, he takes a personality, he takes a body, he takes a, an ego. But the whole point is, there's no identification with it. There's never any sense that this is really me. There is what you can call simply a complete sense of freedom. Swami describes it so beautifully. He says it's it's just simply that the... Avatar uses ego will. He did say that word, and I, he didn't explain it in detail. We think of ego, Yogananda defines as the soul being identified with the body. That's how Yogananda defines it. But in this case, I think, identified to the extent that there is a responsibility. You know, Yogananda had a, a whole personality he lived out. But he described it as saying, when I see... He, he spoke of these things so casually... He said, when I see the personality I'm going to have to assume, he said, it's uncomfortable at first, like a hot, like a heavy overcoat on a hot day. He said, but then I get used to it. I mean, just imagine that. Just to have to go from an undifferentiated state of bliss, these are just words to me, to, to be standing inside one body and know that I have to be responsible for it. And so they use the mechanism that moves one force, but there's never any identification. They just watch the energy flow through it. And so there, there has to be a certain personality related to that. And so Jesus came at a time to the Jewish people who, by their nature, are very strong-willed, culturally speaking. Plus, there was an enormously entrenched, deeply entrenched understanding of what spiritual truth was that was entrenched not only... Um, theologically and psychologically into people's minds, but societally too. You had these you know, powerful priests who ha- had these hereditary positions who, were, who had wealth and um, a lot of power in the world. And, and there was this very complex relationship between the Jewish culture and then the Romans who ruled them and all of these things. But somewhere deep in that multitude, there was this deep longing for a higher truth. And it was sufficient that it drew him into this world. But in order to come into all of that, and this is how Swami writes about it, you know, Jesus had to have a certain personality. Um, he, he couldn't be you know, sort of meek and mild, really, not in the way that people think of that. But nor was he the kind of social revolutionary that people try to, m- many people try to make him be because he wasn't there for social revolution. That was one of the great disappointing things that happened to his disciples, is that they thought he was going to declare himself king and that, and that the, the Jewish culture would rise up again with this man as their king who so clearly had so much more power than anybody else if he chose to use it that way. And they thought, of course that's how he's going to use it. And many of the things he said that were allegorical, they thought were literal. And right in the middle of that, you know, Jesus came back from India, which is where he was during the missing years. He came back when he was 30. He was 33 years old. He was this tremendous power. And he was in in all directions. And you read this in the Bible. He was constantly challenging the the authorities that were around him. And he, he challenged them absolutely fearlessly. One of the chapters in here that Swami um, quotes from one of the verses is, he is, Jesus has declared himself the son of God as he, you know, casually and continuously called himself that. 
And the priests said, you know, this is blasphemous. No individual can claim that because by that point, the true teachings of Sanatana Dharma had been so distorted. They, it had all been distorted into this. What, what, what Moses brought was the necessity for right behavior. You know, right behavior defined in certain ways, including the, you know, the Ten Commandments, including tithing, by the way. The origin of tithing is Moses on, on Mount Sinai. That's a little known fact. That's where it started because... Um, Moses had to define how do you how do you live a godly life, and and they and Moses explained how you hold your staff up and you have nine sheep walk under and when the tenth sheep walks under you send it and give it to the priest, because he was trying to establish a culture in which the priests in the temples could be supported to do the spiritual work, so you have nine sheep and the tenth one goes to the priest, and then the priests can flourish and the temples can flourish and and they can serve you. And that's where it all started. But because Moses laid down rules of behavior, because they had no society, they'd been slaves, rules of behavior in the minds of lesser people who came after him, rules became the issue. And there were rules for everything because God is a judge, and in order to please the judge, it's a legal system, and this is how you have to do it. There's still remnants of that, even now in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish law and this tremendous studying of I'll tell you a joke. This tremendous studying of, you know, the truth through the, the holy books. There was this man who was a Jewish man, and he was buttering his, um, he was making his breakfast, and he had a piece of toast, and he put the butter on, then he put the jelly on, and then he accidentally dropped the piece of bread, and the bread fell on the ground with the jelly side up. Now, it's a very, you know, much cherished principle in the Jewish teaching that, you know, God loves us so much he causes us to suffer. So he was very concerned because according to, you know, the Jewish tradition that should have fallen jelly side down. So he picked it up and he carried it to the synagogue and he presented it to all the priests and they all immediately grasped the meaning of this. Are we no longer the chosen people? Will the bread fall (laughs) jelly side up from now on? So they put the, the, the toast on the table and then all the priests gathered and they studied it and they searched the books and they went to several other synagogues and they said, come back in a few days and we'll see what we can do. And so they all studied together. And then finally, a few days later, the man came back and he said, well, have you do you understand? I mean, what, what are we going to do about this? And they said, we've, we've studied, we've come to a conclusion. You put the jelly on the wrong side. <laughs> I don't mean to be hard, particularly on the Jews. They're just, we're talking about Jesus. We have to. Um, but what had happened, you see, the aberration that had set in was that it was only about the law. And so Jesus said, no, that's not what, that's not even your own teaching, you know, because it doesn't make any common sense. See, one of the things that, one of the clues that Jesus gave us about even how to understand his own teaching is that it's about common sense. All the way through this, these pages and pages, what Swami's trying to do is he, he, he says it really beautifully. He says, Christianity, in other words, the teachings of Jesus will never be changed or hurt or diminished by any level of human ignorance or aberration. You know, no matter what people do in the name of Jesus, no matter what foolish things they claim he taught, no matter what self-justification they, you know, they use his name, it doesn't really affect the purity of Jesus' consciousness, the power of his true teachings. It, it doesn't touch it. He said Christian, Christianity, and I don't mean churchianity, Christianity is not vulnerable, but Christians are. Because if the, the faith, if, it's, if it doesn't have a real ground to stand on, and it, it becomes subject to all these assaults. And see, what's happening now is, um, let, me, let me just a moment. <clears throat> just as, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up for a minute. It, it's subject to all these assaults. And because Christianity has become taken over by institutions and they don't really have answers to so many challenges that are being posited to it, even those Christians who know it's true 
don't know what to do with everything that's being said to them. And, and what this whole book of Swamis, is, he just takes issue by issue. And he says, okay, here's an answer to this one, here's an answer to this one, here's an answer to this one. It's right in your own teachings. It's right in the Bible. Yes, you have to open your mind to the possibility of another way of looking at it. But it's right in there. Now, when Jesus was living, he, he had this... Oh, this is what I was starting to say. He just had this... He had to have a personality, the way Swamiji describes it, where he could stand up to this enormous structure. He had to be absolutely fearless, and he had to be a real fighter. You know, not just... He, the example he, had, he set was not one of just um, ignoring the world. He confronted the world. And, in these, and this is in one way that he's so much like Yogananda in many of his incarnations. I mean, Yogananda came to the West in this country that knew nothing about this and just brought this whole teaching into um, a culture that, that, didn't, that wasn't interested or, let me phrase it differently, that was completely ignorant. And, and Yogananda met a tremendous amount of opposition. Unfortunately, Self-Realization Fellowship, which basically owns the historical records, just has whitewashed it all. And, and so you, you don't understand. You just think, oh, he just sailed in. And yes, he was very popular and had a tremendous amount of success. But he was also deeply persecuted. He faced lawsuits. He, said, he faced scandals. And Swami tells some of the stories in some of his books. He, even back in India, there was this whole... Uh, Swami tells in one of his, his books about when, when Master was in India in 1935 or 36, some English woman was paid to try to get Yogananda into a compromising position. And she was supposed to rush up to him and throw her arms around him, and then they would take pictures, and then they would prove that this sadhu was really not what he seemed. I mean, you know, just... And so Master intuited that this was going to happen, and when the woman came close, he grabbed her by the waist, and he held her up in the air like this. And then he said, he turned to the photographers who, you know, were planning, all right, he said, take your picture, you know, just like this. He just wasn't going to let it happen. But that didn't mean that um, sometimes these things would get started. There's, you know, lots of newspaper articles. And even he was, he was uh, driven out of town, out of Miami, Florida, because he was a black man from their point of view, and he was teaching to white audiences. And he couldn't get, he couldn't get the people in that town to break the rules of segregation to listen to him. And he basically just wiped the dust of that town off its feet and just went away. But, you know, it was a huge scandal. And those are just a few examples. He had to fight because there was no established tradition in America for Sanatana Dharma. It's true that Christianity is here, and that's why he came. But there was no established tradition. And by the time Jesus arrived to the Jewish people, the whole tradition was gone. And he was a tremendous threat. And they, you know, worked themselves up until they managed to get him killed, which is what he knew was going to happen. But earlier on was starting to say they were going to stone him um, because he had blasphemed, and their law says death to the blasphemer. That's, you can't possibly claim this unity with God. God is this great, fearsome thing so far away. How dare you do this? And it was you know, just a, well, it was punishable by death. And they had stones in their hands. They were going to stone him. And he says to them, for what good thing are you going to stone me? I've healed your sick. I've I've helped you in so many different ways. I mean, these are people that he knew were going to stone him. He said, for which of, which of my many good deeds are you going to kill me? Now, you, you have to admire someone <laughs> in such a moment. He's facing a, a, a fierce mob. And that's his response. I mean, not only courageous, but humorous. You know, he's, he speaks with irony. And you can't imagine he wouldn't have done that in a whining voice, as Swami writes. He wouldn't have said, oh, I've done so many good things. How are you going to stone me now? You know, it just it couldn't have been like that. It must have been the way he faced everything else, which is, go ahead. But then he turns it right back on them. And he not only had to, Jesus not only had to have the personality to confront that reality, but as Swami said, he had to sort of pull the whole tradition in a new direction. And, and these are very real things because changes change. It's all about energy. And when Yogananda says things like, I've planted my words in the ether and they will move the West, that's this great quote that we often talk, uh, talk about and repeat because he talks about building 
world brotherhood colonies, as he called them, these small spiritual communities. I have thousands of youths go north, south, east, and west to cover the earth with little colonies. And, and then he says, my words are, are planted in the ether and they will move the west. And I mean, a master doesn't say something like that for effect. He, he knows, he sees what he's saying. And, and there is that much energy planted. See, we tend to think of the material plane as being the powerful place. But the material plane is the last point at which all of this manifests. I mean, think about it, just in a very common sense way. You know, first you have to have the ideas, then you have to have the energy, and then, yes, you have to manifest it. But if you don't have energy and ideas, nothing ever happens. This is the last point. And the more powerful those ideas and the more powerful the energy, the more powerful the expression is going to be at the end. And so, like Yogananda and these other masters, they come with this great force to turn the whole direction of society. And it's not just the body that they're living in. It's the whole uh, opening of the cosmos. And, and of course, what that does is that it plants this eternally and then for, forever. Souls are always continuously drawing on that. I mean, all of us who have dedicated ourselves to manifesting this work, I mean, nobody instructs us on a day-to-day basis. Where do, where do we know what to do? How do we know what to do? Why does it even occur to us to do this? It's because Yogananda planted those thoughts in the ether. And all of, of, of Christ's consciousness, uh, the consciousness of Jesus is planted in the ether. And that's the force. What I was saying a moment ago, their freedom is circumscribed by the culture in which they choose to incarnate, by the needs of that particular mission, and by the karma of those disciples. Because he also comes, an avatar always comes also for some, literally for some small group of people or large group of people, but individuals who have a personal relationship. And it's an important thing to to realize that it always comes down to that. Because in this world, God acts always through instruments. It's, it's not like, and that's, that's the folly of the whole, the whole fundamental aberration of Christianity, is to remove Jesus from any level of our capacity to evaluate what he says by common sense. You know, he's just a special creation and he just drops in there. Now, I was starting to say a while ago that Jesus himself constantly asserted the most simple test. How do you know a true prophet from a false one? It was a very good question because Jesus wasn't the only one who was going around baptizing and making claims. There was John the Baptist, of course, who was intimately connected to Jesus, but there were others. How do you know a true from a false? Jesus said, so simple, by the fruits, by the fruit of their action. And then he says, a good tree does gives good fruit, a bad tree gives bad fruit. He didn't say because of the doctrine, because of this, because of that, go ask the priest. He said, just use your common sense. This is the experience that you see. Even when they're going to stone him, he says, well, what good thing are you going to stone me for? You're just listening to your rules that say this or that, that, stop with me, think with me, you know, understand what I'm saying to you. And then even just to break the whole concept of the Jewish people of this wrathful God. He said when a a son goes to a father and asks him for a loaf of bread because he's hungry, will the father just give him a stone? And so you you just start with with the simplest idea. Bring this down to something that I know. And then what what Jesus was doing is exactly what Yogananda has done in this incarnation even more powerfully, is he's putting, he's taking the responsibility out of the hands of the priests and putting it in the hands of the individual. You know, this is how you can do it, and you can do it yourself. You don't have to stand helplessly by the side. One of my Hindu friends said that Hinduism is a religion that you can't practice yourself. You have to pay somebody to practice it for you because he's talking about all these elaborate rituals and pujas and everything that's required, you have to hire a priest to come in and do it. You can't do it yourself. Because it's just all so encrusted with tradition. I mean, that really, there's a lack of common sense in that. How can you pay someone to practice your religion for you? Now, of course, 
There's many ways that you can say there's something good in there, but you, you see what happens to these things. Well, Jesus came to restore that kernel of Sanatan Dharma because the age was getting darker and darker, and it was the, the fate of Christianity to be trapped at the time in a very materialistic world, and then the world got more and more materialistic as it descended. So they kept having to put onto Christianity more and more matter-based explanations. Okay, Jesus said he was the son of God. Then, then therefore he, he must have been, you know, conceived by God, and Mary was his mother, but that, you know, we don't want it to be just ordinary. It couldn't possibly have been just an ordinary conception, so it must have been some, you know, mir- miraculous kind of conception, okay? And then Mary herself, you know, she couldn't have been an ordinary woman too, so she must have been conceived too. The immaculate conception actually relates to Mary, because it's like Jesus was using words to open us up to these deeper experiences, but there was no um, mass capacity to hear it intuitively. Individually, yes, but as a culture, it just wasn't, it wasn't there to happen. <clears throat> just a moment, I forgot. In the chapter, one of the chapters in this book, A Matter of the Heart, or perhaps it was a different one of the chapters, but Swamiji also talks about Oh, he, w- he was talking about what is God. That's what he was really saying. That was the chapter in here. Let me, let me see if I can put this all together. And he, he just, Swami starts talking about the folly of really thinking that if we can intellectually define this, that we will actually understand it. So Swami takes on a few issues. One of them is the male pronoun he and you know, and the others are intellectual definitions which Swami loves to play with, like the cosmic ground of being as a definition for God. Swami points out, using the, the test of common sense, that what on earth does that mean? What does that mean to anyone? Does anybody have any kind of experience that you know, sort of says, oh, I know what the cosmic ground of being was? It's just like, where do these words come from? And then we get concerned about you know, we don't want to be prejudiced against men or we don't want to be prejudiced against women, so we have to call God he, she, it every time. Father, mother, God. That's what people say, father, mother, God, like that. Because we're, we're just trying to think that if we just get it all straight in this way. But then Swamiji explains really so sweetly. He says, words don't mean anything unless you have an experience that will tell you what those words mean. He said, you can have a jar, as he put it, of raspberry jam. But if, you don't, if you, you don't know what jam is or don't know what a raspberry is, the words raspberry jam won't mean anything to you. It's only after you've tasted it that then afterwards you can, you can speak of raspberry jam and you know what you're talking about. So he said when we, when we, when we think of um, spirituality entirely in terms of how we explain it and getting the words exactly right, there's, there's no possibility to get those words right because if we don't have any experience, those words don't mean anything to us. And he uses cosmic ground of being. Is that it's just like, where, where would that come from? Or this excessive concern about whether it's a he or a she. And then he says it's so self-conscious, you say he, she every time. And he, he said he is an impersonal word, she is not. He said even the languages are different, even the word love. And he goes through this wonderful thing, love is just an English word. If you're in Italy or Spain, he uses his two examples. He said, but in both of those, the word love has slightly different meaning. One means, I want you. So instead of saying, I love you, it's, it's about desire. Now, can you say that, I, uh, that desire is actually the same as God? It gets a little confusing, doesn't it? Or, I want what is good for you, is another, I want to benefit you, is another ex, uh, English definition of other languages' words for love. So then he comes to Sanskrit and he says in Sanskrit there's three kinds of love. They speak of kama, which is desire. They speak of bhakti, which is devotion. And then they speak of prem, which is selfless, unconditional love. Now, of course, prem is really what we're talking about when we're talking about God. But still, you can then say, oh, prem, or you can use the word ananda, which means bliss. And use substitute that as a word for God. But if you've never tasted raspberry jam, you still don't know what you're talking about, do you? Right? 
He said, so what you really want in your concept of God is something that uplifts your feelings, that uplifts your heart, that gives you a way to change your consciousness and to to become capable of receiving the power that's already there. And then once you receive it, you realize none of your words have anything to do with it anyway. And so then any word works. Then you speak of Divine Mother or Heavenly Father, and you're, you're just not all caught up in these incredible debates. You know, I, I get caught up in these, being a, a female minister, it's not quite as intense as it used to be. But, you know, I've been just taken to task for using a male pronoun for God, and I just become sort of speechless. I just don't know where to go with it, you know? Besides which, masculine is a very important concept. You can't just get rid of the masculine concept. The Father God is a, is a, is a, a spiritual concept. It's not just a patriarchal way of abusing people. It's a real thing. You can't just throw it out because then all you have is God within creation. You don't have God beyond creation anymore because people from not understanding begin to destroy it. But the main point is, those are just words. And any word will do once you have the experience. I was so amused. This is, I'll say this, this is a little bit off the subject, but then we'll take a break. When my father, in the last few couple of years of his life, he had a degree of Alzheimer's, and uh, he developed a certain kind of aphasia. He could still speak, <clears throat> but I don't know what he thought he was saying, but he would, he would, he would just put words together. You know, like, he, well, he, used to, he was an actuary, and he used to talk in terms of benefits and pension plans and percentages and things like that. So he would all use a lot of those words. He would talk about it, the policy, but he would say things like, you know, and very earnestly, you know, and so then the chair went into the policy, and then after that, the percentages of it were really quite obscure, according to the, the window frame. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be very earnest communication. I never spoke to him back in gibberish. I would just speak back in plain English. We just have these conversations. I would say what I wanted to say, and he would speak essentially gibberish back to me. But it was an exchange of consciousness. It was an extremely real exchange of consciousness. And it was no different. It was, you know, old people become like babies. What it really was, and it was very touching. I always had a very sweet relationship with my father. And I have very happy memories as a child of, of his presence in my life. And um, it was exactly the same as, our ch- as, as being a child for this reason, which is when I was a child, there wasn't a lot of intellectual content, you know, because I was just a, a little being. And so now all, the intellectual content was gone again, but the, what made the relationship what it was was there. And it, was, it made it so obvious that all of that stuff that you put on top of it is not whatever what's really happening. This is when this woman, Kamala Silva, who was a direct disciple of Master, she wrote The Flawless Mirror and a couple of other books, beautiful books about Master. She also completely lost her mind at the end of her life. I've talked to her several times to you all, many of you. And when I first heard about that, I was just, I said, Swami, she's lost her mind like this. And so Swami said, it's just her mind. He said, it's just like, that's just her mind. But it's her mind. And he would say, it's just her mind. And it wasn't until I met her that I understood, oh, all she's lost is her mind. She just couldn't, she didn't have intellectual content anymore. But her consciousness and her vibrational experience of life was so elevated that it was self-evident that intellect was a lower level than what she was experiencing. And she, you know, she didn't, at the end of her life, she just was so completely outside of this plane. She was living in a, a, a convalescent place, and she just, she thought she was in the Himalayas. She thought all of her little stuffed animals were real. She'd always really liked animals, and she couldn't have any pets, so she had all these stuffed animals, but she just thought they were living beings. Who's to say they weren't? Because for her, it was just bliss, really. And she was just attaching it to all these different things. So we get very caught up. And, and this is one of the many things in this book that Swami's trying to rescue Christians from all these assaults. Well, Christianity is not valid because it's patriarchal and he speaks of God the Father and it's outdated. 
You know, and a poor soul devoted to Jesus doesn't know how to defend against that. Because, in fact, Jesus did talk about the father. He never talked about the mother. Man, he was trying to get from the judge. He couldn't get to the mother. He could get from the judge to the father, but the mother was way too big a step. You know, he could treat women with respect and with equality, but it was a bit too much to really... Because his teachings weren't limited, but he was limited by the culture in which he incarnated and the people he came to serve. So, let's take a few minutes break now. All right. I'm going to just sort of pick up a few concepts. I didn't do this systematically. I mean, I've written out all these chapters, but I've, co- I've covered what I really wanted to say. And I've completely lost the thread of anything we were talking about. But um, in one of the chapters, Swamiji talks about the importance of devotion and of feeling. And he, again, these are the questions that he's, he's sort of trying to put all of these arguments on firmer footing. And these are, these are helpful things to us because... Not only do people challenge us for our own beliefs, but we have the opportunity to help other people. I mean, it's a very painful thing. You see really sincere spiritual people. Well, I know what I was... Here's where I was wanting to go before the break. Um, Let's see. What's happened to Christians who are being assaulted in these ways is because Christianity started in a descending materialistic age. And the, and the dogmas became very fixed during a time when there was no scientific evidence to refute it. And every time any scientist tried to refute it, the Catholic Church did their best to excommunicate them and expunge them. Now, I've, I've done enough about the Jews, now I'll go into the Catholics. When Swami was, when Swami was writing these book, this book, it became sort of a joke. <clears throat> you know, he would call and he would say, well... <clears throat> I basically slashed up the Catholics today. The next day he would say, well, I went after the scholars today, and tomorrow it's going to be, you know, the scientists. And then we went after the Jews every once in a while, and we would start making lists of people he hadn't yet excoriated in the course of this book. Because there was so much misunderstanding that has to be dismantled. But because Christianity was, was created in a descending materialistic age, these very fixed and rigid dogmas came up. And because the, the, the period, one of the characteristics of Kali Yuga was this tremendous separation between the Eastern and Western ways of looking at the world. Even though, and this is later in the book, the lost years of Jesus, the, the, it, it's an it's a, a, a increasingly well-accepted fact. And it's a fact that Yogananda states with that unequivocally that for, when Jesus was 12 years old, he left and he went to Tibet. And he, and he went to the Himalayas. And there's evidence in those places that Jesus was there. There's, there's these scriptures and descriptions of these people. And besides that, it's just what Master says. He, he went to India and studied at the feet of the Masters. He did sadhana. Like, you know, most... Um, the truth of even an avatar's life is that they play out the drama of uh, what it, how, how, we, how we advance spiritually. Yogananda, you read his autobiography of a yogi, and he comes across almost in his own book like he was just any devotee who happened to be lucky enough to meet a lot of saints. And he went into his, his uh, guru's ashram and studied hard for a decade and, and was subject to very severe training and and worked hard to master the spiritual path. The Swamiji said, you know, if the avatars don't do that, then, then we never have a context for what we're supposed to do. They're examples, they're real living examples of souls who have walked the path that we have walked and simply reached the end of it. They're standing where we're trying to go and they're showing us how to walk that path, even in one lifetime. And But during Kali Yuga, part of the things that happen during these dark ages. And, you know, this is not just a theory of India. It's an accepted truth in India, but the many different traditions speak of these different ages, the Bronze Age, the Silver Age, the Gold Age. It's, it's just a way that people have kept alive this realization that history on the planet changes. I mean, think of the barbarism that was just common then. Jesus, the crucifying Jesus was nothing special. That's how they executed people. I mean, to execute people at all is a barbarous thing. 
But to execute them by nailing them to a piece of wood on a public street, it's pretty gruesome. But that was just the way things were. And, you know, and then they went into all the Colosseum sports and so on. A very dark age. Um, let's see, where was I with this thought? Oh, so the, the, the teaching solidified around, around a very materialistic view of life. Jesus says he's the son of God. I was starting to say this earlier. So that means he's the son of God, and Mary was his mother, and God was his father. So that means Joseph can't really be his father. That's how that whole dogma started. Now, remember, it's fine for Mary to be his mother, but since he was the son of God, then Joseph couldn't be his father. You see the problem? I mean, you think of it, you just think, but it was a very real problem to them. They just couldn't figure out what to do with all these things, so they just started making up these dogmas. But the dogmas are very hard to... They worked when it was a very hierarchical age. And, and it, it wasn't the age of the individual. It was the age of institutions and the ages of authority. Think of it. You had serfs, you had the lords, you had the kings. They were, they were, the, the class structure was so enormous, the people with authority had so much authority. And the whole mindset of that time was not based on the individual's rights. It was all very from the top down. So if the church told you that this was what it was, it wasn't, so, it wasn't such a stretch to just accept it. But then what happens, of course, is that we've transitioned out of this and we're coming into a completely different reality. I mean, energy is just one part of it, but it's the beginning of, of Einstein and others and all the scientists. I mean, book after book comes out and they're just telling us that this world we see is a complete illusion. It just isn't what it seems. And so our minds very easily go into that reality. And, but you're still left with these Christian dogmas. And, and one of the dogmas is that, you know, there was no revelation before Jesus, that, you know, just mankind just struggled along and God was so cruel as to just leave us all sitting there. And then finally, he just, in his mercy, just sent this one body down, this Jesus person, who was his only son. I mean, where was he up until that time? Was he in boarding school? I mean, like, where was he? It's just all so ludicrous. And then he comes down, and then if you were lucky enough, then you're saved. And then still, if you, if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you're damned to hell. I mean, this is really what the teaching is. And it's like Jesus is the only source of salvation. And it worked when there were, you know, no communication among cultures, and there was just little isolated groups of people who couldn't email someone on the other side of the world, and it was just so different. But now, to present those teachings when everything that that was based on is blown apart, you know, Christianity can survive because it's Sanat and Dharma, but it's really hard on Christians. And so what they've done is they, they, they make up dogmas. Like so I, One of my favorite lines in this book is, Swamiji speaks at great length about in here about what self-realization really is, what a master really is, what salvation actually is. It's not salvation. It's not when the, the Christian dogma is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is where you get to go. And the kingdom of heaven is heaven. It's just like somewhere out there. And you just kind of live along, and if you're saved by Jesus... When your physical body dies, you get like this really nice house in this really pretty place. One of my friends, who's, you know, my contemporary was went to Catholic school and they tried to make him be good by telling him that if he was a good little boy, he would get a bigger house in heaven. He just really found that very unmotivating. <laughs> he just, there was something like, but that was what the nuns actually said to him. You'll have a bigger house in heaven. Because heaven was just this other place. And, but your happiness was that you didn't go to hell where everybody else was going if they didn't accept Jesus Christ. It's very, very hard. You, you meet, you go to Africa, you just get on a plane, you go to Africa, you meet these tribesmen with these wonderful spiritual traditions of their own. You go to India, you see what it's like over there. You know, you, you, just so many places you can go. All these people are damned to hell because they just don't happen to accept Jesus Christ. And then you have this poor Christian who loves Jesus with their whole heart, but just doesn't quite know what to do with all these parts. What do I do with all these things? So Yogananda came onto the scene and was sent by Jesus. 
Because Jesus is an omniscient being, and Swamiji explains in great length here, and it's very important, that once the bubble merges into the sea, that because, there is, because it's omniscient, it can always reconstruct the bubble again. And so the individual that is Jesus is the same individual that went through all those incarnations before he was self-realized. It's just a remarkable thing to contemplate. And, and so you, the bubble merges with the sea, but then the bubble comes out again. So Jesus, as the fully self-realized master that he is, with this continuous dharma to help those who are drawn. I mean, the New Testament still exists. We still read about his life. Time, enough time will pass. There have been avatars we no longer remember because it's just been so far in the distant past that we can't conjure them. But Jesus is still an active force in this world. And it doesn't end just because his body ends. This is an ongoing reality. And now this separation, I was starting to say, in the material age, the Master explains, materialistic age, that the, the general consciousness is too dense to keep both the material and the spiritually strongly focused at the same time. So it was in the divine will that East and West should separate. And the West should specialize in this materialistic, Swamiji calls us this executive attitude toward life. I love the way he puts that. The, the West has this attitude that when something happens, we should do something about it. And I should do something about it. I should take responsibility. This sort of like action all the time. And the Oriental, the Asian point of view is, is much more just receptive. Oh, things are happening. You know, they'll just flow. It's karma's running its course. And, 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 and it has its very positive sides. Both of them do. But the, what Yogananda explains is that during the Kali Yuga age, the West specialized in external practicality. And the East specialized in just keeping the internal truths alive. And of course, the West has become just so desperately unhappy with its excessive materialism, and the East has become utterly impoverished because of its lack of, uh, the ca- lack of executive capacity. But now what's happening is those forces are coming back together. And so the East and the West is merging again on many different levels, and we, we joke about it because uh, just all the... the, the multicultural things, but you go to India sometimes and the people are just more Western, even it, no matter what their bodies look like, they're more Western than, than Westerners. And then there's people like myself and many of the rest of you who just sort of wander around this culture just thinking, what is going, what is wrong with these people? It just seems so crazy. First time I went to India, one of my friends said, he put it perfectly, he said, well, he said, I can live the rest of my life in America a little more easily because I realize there is some place where I actually do feel at home. You know, it's just like the culture just makes a lot more sense on some deep level. But what you're seeing there is it's going to just have to rise up. and it's not, Nothing is... But there's a deep truth to the Indian culture that is this internal spirituality. But again, all this is coming back together. And Jesus is as active in it now as he was before. And that's where this um, request... Jesus appeared to the great master Babaji. Babaji has been in charge of the spirituality of the East. Jesus has been in charge of the spirituality of the West. Jesus says to Babaji, okay, the time has come, let's bring it together. Because my followers have gotten a little confused. It's become so deeply externalized. We need to bring to them the the, the message. We have to renew in them the message that I actually brought, which was inner communion. Because see, what Jesus actually did, you see, is he took spiritual responsibility away from the priests and he gave it to individuals. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Do you see how, how absolutely uh, undermining that was to everything that was in place? That, 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 that an individual could just receive this power directly? from God without any regard to any of the rules, any of the laws, any of the habits. And that's what Jesus promised them. But you see, isn't that exactly what Yogananda promised? The only place, one of Yogananda's amazing statements is the only place that God can be experienced is in the human nervous system. Every time I I say that, I always think, you want to say the only place that God can be experienced and you want something really poetic to follow that, don't you? 
He says the human nervous system, meaning that our own consciousness, our own, we, we incarnated in a body with one purpose, and that purpose is to realize God. And when Jesus said the kingdom of God is within, that's what he meant. He was speaking of the fact that you, you, the only place that the divine can be experienced is in your own consciousness. And so all of these teachings are great stumbling blocks for people who intuitively know that Jesus' teaching is right, but then are assaulted from so many sides. And even all of us, we need to find a way to just bring all that into an integrated whole. We have a, we have a responsibility, plus it's part of our own... Let me think how to say it. It deepens our own spirituality to be able to see things from many different angles. It's also very important for us to have the courage, too, to really hear. Okay, this is, I mean, not everyone in this room is a disciple, but the majority of you are, so I'm speaking to you. If Master said something was true, then we have to really go deep into understanding why it's true and how it's true, because we, too, We can't just rely on the fact that he said it. We have to also put ourselves into it and grasp it from our own common sense. Because otherwise when the pressure is on us, we'll just, you know, bail from it because we don't really know it. 